Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com and subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. For those who are frequent listeners, you guys know that we've been talking about engagement throughout this series. The importance of engagement, being engaged with your work, with your organization. And today we're digging a little deeper into that topic. In today's episode, we have the author of the enormously popular book, Coaching Agile Teams, Lissa Atkins, as a guest. When I was going through her book in the intro, I noticed that Mike Cohn, our pre- one of our previous guests, was calling her out on the passion that she was showing uh, during one of her talks. And that made me really curious about what passion means to her and what she sees as the impact of passion uh, in her daily job. So let's hear what she's got to say. Hey, Lissa, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Sander. And thank you very much for being here. What What makes your day so good today? Well, um, <laughs> my day is so good because the sunshine has just come out after a very long day of very drenching rain that I was walking in earlier <laughs> because... <laughs> My house is under construction right now. You might hear some of that in the background. And um, and so we're parking our cars quite far up the street <laughs> because we need to make space for the, the construction trucks to get in the driveway. So I uh, had a nice walk in the rain. Sounds challenging. Hey, I was, all right. <laughs> I was reading your book, Coaching Agile Teams, the other day, uh, which I yeah. happened to revisit every once in a while. And I caught myself... Going through Mike Cohn's foreword, and what stood mm. out to me was how he describes and picks out your passion on stage. And I think he was describing this back in 2006, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that triggered me. What makes you so passionate about this subject, about your talks about coaching agile teams and these kind of things? I know. It's it's changed over time. So if I if I just go to into the the way back machine and think about the very first scrum gathering I attended, which apparently is two thousand six. Thank you for that. And um, that was the one where I was doing this talk called "The Road from Project Manager to Agile Coach," and that's when um, I had the first conversation with Mike Cohn, where he you know. He said, I want you to write a book for my series. And I'm like, you're crazy. I have nothing. I'm, I'm just barely, I'm the brand new agile coach. I have nothing to say. But it turned out that, you know, he was right. And I, I eventually did decide to attempt to write the book. And then the book, you know, came out a year later. Um, but what was, what was passionate for me at that time was just the individual struggle of moving into this modern way of working where you don't have someone sitting in the center orchestrating everything and telling everyone what to do and then everyone is just supposed to you know capitulate or the the slightly more advanced version of that was you had a project manager who would go around and sort of one-on-one interview everyone about how long their piece would take 
you know, and then try to put some sort of plan together and then hold people to that. And that was just a recipe for a lot of heartache. And so when I bumped into Agile and started working on my first scrum teams, I realized, oh my gosh, it didn't have to be that hard. And, and I didn't have to be that tough with people. I mean, there was a, I was not happy with the way that I was being in the work world, but I didn't know there was something different. And so the passion comes from just that individual journey of moving into this modern way of working that works so much better with our era of complexity. Um, but also, you know, the pain of moving from something you thought you knew really well, some, a way you thought you were really successful and you were because it, you know, for me, it got me to where I was, but then to find out that it had all these downsides and I was actually being anti-helpful and in some cases harming people. That must have been a tough lesson indeed to learn. Now we're 15 years later from that point, roughly. Did you expect the success of the book to be as big as it, as it is? No way. When I, <laughs> when I spoke with Mike Cohn and I said, so, you know, like, tell me the reasons for actually writing a book. I mean, why do you do it? He says, look, it's just a big business card. That's what a book is. It's a big business card. You're not going to make a lot of money on it, you know. Um, but it's really useful for sort of, you know, staking your claim on, you know, this is my area that I know something about. And it turned out that I didn't write the book for any of those reasons. I just wrote it because the book started coming to me at night. I'd wake up in the morning and just start jotting things down. And before I knew it, I had the outline of the book. And then it just, it was a creative endeavor that I just felt like I was participating in and couldn't stop. But long story short is that holy moly, has this book survived so long and it's not even done yet. It's not anywhere near done yet. And so, you know, at the time I thought that the book needed to come out when it did. And in fact, I was ready to sacrifice some of the lower business value chapters because that particular time in 2010 was a really formative time for these roles of Scrum Master and Agile Coach and the other roles in Agile too, But those in particular were very muddy and it was very confusing to people. So I took a stab at, at what those might be and how they might be powerful. But for it to continue this long tells me that there's something going on around the world and that this book is, is still that useful thing for people no matter what their role is, to move from that predict and plan kind of way of working into more of a collaborative and a sense and respond way of working, which is a really hard transition. So I think that's why it's still popular. Do you think it's ever going to be finished? If you're going to, if you look into a sense and respond kind of way, and you already mentioned it's nowhere near finished, do you think it's ever going to be finished? So what's the it to which you refer? Your book itself, your work in the book. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what the thing I'm doing right now is championing the next generation of people who are advancing the state of the art in agile coaching. Because there are, of course, lots of things that have happened in 15 years. And, and our skills as a worldwide community have definitely grown. And so we are ready for more advanced topics. And so... Um, 
So I think that, you know, supporting those people's work is really important. And it's something that I'm focusing on now. Um, you know, eventually, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that eventually the things that are in the Coaching Agile Teams book are taught to children in schools. And that we don't have to sort of get it as remedial learning as adults. How long I think that's that take? a wonderful. I, I think that's a wonderful topic that you bring up there, and I think that connects to your passion as well. What are parts that you hope uh, that will be taught in children's schools? I think the um, the thing I would like children to know how to navigate better is conflict. And to see conflict, I mean, obviously we're talking about toddlers, right? You're just telling toddlers what the rules are about, you know, share your toys, don't be mean, say you're sorry when you hurt someone, all that's great. But as we get a little bit older, what we tend to do still today, I think, is shy away from strong differences because we think something's wrong when there's a strong difference or even a mild difference. We think there's something wrong. When in fact, that's just the beginning of the creative process. So I would love for people to have much more facility in, in working with conflict as a creative um, accelerator. Um, I would love for people to learn how to be in the present moment together. Because I think most of the time people aren't actually even in the same conversation. Right. I fully agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. Speaking of which, I just stepped all over you. <laughs> I was off to oh, my no. other thought. That'd be my guess. So, case in point. There we go. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the Scrum in Schools movement. And, you know, I'm just really wishing for a lot of good progress there with Scrum in Schools. And I'm also aware of um, an Agilist work. His name is Luke Holman. He has a new endeavor called First Root. And it's using the same sort of um, gamification that we use in the Agile community to help product owners, product managers figure out what to build. But in this case, he's using it in high schools as a participatory budgeting process to help students work with real money to do real projects to improve their high school, which means two things. They have to learn to collaborate around the most tenuous topic Money, sex might be more tenuous, but money is up there. Money is like yeah, one of these topics try to that do people sex with just scrum. get squirrely around. <laughs> I think that's going to be your specialty, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so conversations and collaboration and decision making around money, and then also learning how to how to be good citizens together. So, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. With, uh, with First Root, with what Luke Holman is doing, and also with Scrum in Schools, I'm hopeful that we will start to have these skills that allow us to collaborate for real. And that sounds awesome. Now, if, I, if we go back to what you were telling about your experience, stepping from a more traditional way of working into a Scrum Agile mindset, what were the most painful lessons to you that really made you think hey maybe i'm on i've been on the wrong side here we're on the verge of something different hmm. yeah so one of the best pieces of feedback i ever got that even today 
I got this piece of feedback about 12 years ago, and even today it just chills me when I hear it. Um, a dear friend of mine, Zoltan's, uh, we were in a leadership program together, and he said, you know, sometimes you trade being kind for being right. And that's where you fail as a leader. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. And you know, and if and if my calling in the world was to go around being right and telling people what to do, that that approach might work. You know, the being right approach and not caring about my impact. That might work. And I think a lot of people in the world go around thinking that that's just fine. My, you know, my path in the world put me and has put many of us into the situation where our job is to help people increase their capacity and their capabilities and their ability to deal with the modern complex world as it is. And in that case, being kind is as, is as important, maybe more so important than being quote unquote right, which by the way, I wasn't nearly as right as often as I thought. That's one sad piece of that lesson. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that if I want to help people grow, and I do, being kind about their process while having backbone, that's not like being a pushover by any means, but uh, accompanying them, being side by side with them um, is a much more effective way. Yeah, there indeed is a difference between being kind to get what you want and being genuinely empathetic. How do you see empathy yeah. being transitioned in from a more Tayloristic way of management into the current days of events? Yeah, I think I would say that people with a, a Tayloristic mindset, basically that workers are lazy and we have to do things to make them work, um, they can take all of these agile goodies we have and use them for that purpose. Use them for the purpose of beating people so that they will work. Um, so, you know, that that is an unfortunate thing. And I think about it as an operating system, actually. I think about it, I'm not the only one to say that. You know, plenty of people in the agile community talk about, you know, the agile meme being an, it, it, running better when it's on a modern operating system versus a Tayloristic or an industrial mindset kind of operating system. In fact, it doesn't run well there at all. Although plenty of us are trying. Plenty of us are trying to do that. So I think that we need to be aware that just because these processes, patterns, tools, value systems from the agile space are geared toward the modern complex era, they can be used as weapons. And now I've actually lost your question because I went off on that tangent. So there was something else you were, you were leading me into there and I forgot what it is. Yeah, where you feel the empathy has come in more compared to Taylorism. Uh, yeah. But you also were triggering yeah. me with how we can, that, that these values um, and all the tools basically that Agile bring and business agility brings is that they can use as, be used as weapons too. And I never thought about that. And I think that's a, a terrible, a terrible thought. Yeah. How, uh, oh. Yeah. I mean, this is where fake, 
Yeah, this is where fake empathy comes in, you know, like just enough empathy to manipulate someone. Now, I mean, the good news is that we as human beings are really, really good at detecting when we're being manipulated. Now, it might take us a while to really understand that that's happening, that someone's manipulating us, but, but eventually we figure it out. And when we figure it out, we usually don't stay in those situations very long because it's so painful. It's so painful to have someone pretend like they're doing something that's going to benefit you and then find out that all they were really in it for was their own gain and that they'd be willing to use any tool to do that, you know? So it does happen, but I have to say, I don't, I don't see it happening often. I don't. I see mostly well-intentioned people trying to run this new app called Agile on an old operating system. And it's just a bit clunky, you know, I, you know, and, <laughs> and it doesn't quite run well. And they have to like learn the same lessons over and over and over again before they can lever themselves truly into this new operating system. I like that analogy. Hey, let's let's go back uh, back a little bit. Um, somewhere between your um, childhood schools and 2006, basically, somewhere you discovered your passion. Is that something that you've been brought up with to really consider? Hey, this is something that I like. Maybe something that's that's what I should pursue, or is that something that just came along? So I think there are two answers to that. One is about the people who who showed me what I love to do and uh, and then the limitations um, in growing up. And then the other answer, a completely different angle, is about how adult development works. And so I can see, you know, that whole story of my life through that lens as well. So let's just do the first one. There were definitely people in my life, I can think of my drama coach, um, I can think of the fact that I, even though it wasn't my major or my focus, I still performed in musicals and in jazz quartets almost all the way through college. Not quite. At some point I dropped it and got serious about, you know, my major. But, um, but I loved that sort of thing, but it was always just considered a hobby. Um, and that was because um, you know, my parents did an amazing job of making sure that both my brother and I came out of college without any debt. And oh, for them wow. to do that meant that they had to scrimp and save um, and work really hard and really long hours. And so there was always this undertone of, you know, we're, do, we're making all these sacrifices. We are, we are doing this because we love you and you better earn money when you get out. You know, so it was sort of like, yeah, that's all nice and fun and playtime, but yeah, you're going to have to have a major. And so, you know, a major like, you know, in the business world or like yeah, an engineering yeah. degree or something. And so I went into business in college. I thought I was going to be a finance major, found out that I am horrible with arithmetic, <laughs> but also, also horrible with just understanding how numbers work. Um, and at the time... There was this little known major that had just started in my university called Management Information Systems. It was the first joint degree between the business school and the computer science school. And so I found a, a, um, a professor there 
And he was just so good and engaging. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. It's like this computer thing and this business thing together. And somehow he noticed that I could write. And so he and I even authored an article about <clears throat> how, how communication changes the way software programs are created. And we did a bunch of research and, um, and Deborah Tannen uh, was a great researcher on um, speech and how the way we speak um, limits women's uh, capabilities, not capabilities, but limits women's options. And so I, I was bringing that stuff in in the early 1990s when I was in college. And so, you know, we never got published. That paper never got published. But somehow, as I look back now, because I didn't think much about it after then, but somehow that professor, Professor Warkington, he knew I could write. And I didn't know that. And so, you know, these people were definitely showing me things I was good at, things I was passionate about, but none of that intersected my work life, really. Um, and mostly because of the really strong messaging about, you know, you better have a good job when you get out of college. And so, you know, don't go for these types of degrees, go for those types of degrees. Um, I flirted with wanting to be a marine biologist and nope, that was next. Didn't work? Nope. Nope, that didn't work. That didn't work. I probably wouldn't have been good at it anyway, but it didn't work. So, you know, that the, the those people along the way showing me what I enjoyed probably did open the door for me believing that someone could work in alignment with their passion. Um, if I look at this same period of time through the lens of adult development, I, you know, there are, are a few key stages of adult development that are pertinent to people in the work world. Um, and this is from the work of Robert Keegan. Three in particular are what's called socialized mind, and then self-authoring mind, and then self-transforming mind. So socialized mind is basically this. Whether you are good or bad is defined by other people. Because other people will tell you what are the rules, how you behave, how you don't behave, what's successful, what's not successful, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And it is totally appropriate for us human beings to go through that stage, in, in other words, to get socialized, which is why it's called socialized mind, so that we can be you know, good contributing members of society, right? And so, you know, typically that stage starts in uh, late, late um, uh, middle school, like 14 years old, all the way through high school, up till maybe someone's 20s. And then some people stay in socialized mind their whole life. There are plenty of people on our planet right now in socialized mind, lots and lots and lots of them. This is also part of the reason why Agile has a little bit of a struggle when it encounters people in socialized mind because they just want to know, how do I do the thing that someone's going to tell me is the right thing to do, right? So They're looking for a reference then. They're, they're looking for more than the reference. They're looking for, how do I um, fill my role? How do I do it well? How do I please people? How do I be acceptable? Therefore... I believe that I will then be successful, right? And so it's just this, you know, there's nothing wrong with it except for that it does not 
allow for a lot of individual fulfillment, right? So that's why a self-authoring mind comes along. At some point, it can dawn on someone, hey, I have my own thoughts. I don't actually believe everything I was raised to believe. You know, the world's, for me, like the world's a bigger place. And I am now in contact with people from all over the world. And I see that we're much more alike than we're different. And so like strong messages I might have gotten about how we are unlike other people. That's not my experience. So I'm ready to jettison that belief system, right? So that's the self-authoring mind is the ability to author your own compass in essence. And then self-transforming, very few people in our modern world are at that level of self-transforming mind at this moment, but more are getting there. And that's where your identity is quite flexible. If I think about the bumper sticker for self-transforming mind, I would say it's something like, I don't believe everything I think. That would be the bumper sticker, right? So, okay, I've laid that out to like answer your question about passion. So in my socialized mind world, Passion was definitely a backseat to money, climbing the ladder, getting secure, getting secure, and then having some sort of outward success, which typically had to do with money and material goods, right? That's what was happening at that particular time. Um, And it's still happening um, to, to a lot of folks. So that makes sense. I didn't understand that I could follow a passion until I started to move into self-authoring mind, which for me was not until, gosh, really until my mid-30s as I think about it now. Because I had my daughter when I was in my late 20s. I spent all that time being a mom. And basically my work was second fiddle. I did some really interesting work, but it was not the focus of my life. Um, And so it was really in my mid-30s when I started moving into self-authoring mind. And I started really um, saying, like, how can I take this compass that got put inside of me and pull it out and look at it and say, do I want these things in this compass? You know, what is my compass? Right. So these things happen over a long period of time. Um, that triggers me in, in something that my therapist once told me. Like He, he was thinking, uh, talking about where people unconsciously start to reconsider everything that they've learned up until that point, somewhere mid-30s, early 30s, mid-30s, mm-hmm. and then really start to move like, okay, I've now learned this. I've did this. This is my, this is my backpack of, of experience and life lessons. Now, what do I do with that? And that kind of sounds like you've been going through that too. Yeah. 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 And it was probably a process that got kicked off in my uh, late 20s. And and really, I feel like I was fully in self-authoring mind by my mid-30s, probably, as I look back now. It's kind of funny. So I haven't really applied this to my own life in this question of passion before. So it's it's really wonderful, Sandra, to do this live with you. Um, the, the cool thing that's going on now is in some parts of the world, not everywhere, but in the part that I live in, and I bet you your life is similar to mine, Sander, that we look at our children and they're actually going through these earlier stage of, stages of adult development faster. 
So um, my daughter, I would say, is fully in self-authoring mind. And pro and she's only 23 and probably started to like really be in self-authoring in high school, in high school. So that's, that's a huge benefit for her because self-authoring mind has the ability to deal with much more complexity than does socialized mind. And we're in a, and we are in confounding complexity in our world right now and in our everyday lives. This success-driven mindset or at least the way that we thought of a success before, like more of a money uh, figure kind of uh, mindset, that has been really supportive of corporate and capitalistic America and basically the yeah. entire Western world. Do you think yep. when we're moving, like, like your daughter is doing now, like as you were describing, as we go along, do you think that the entire notion of capitalism and the way that we perceive success within our complex worlds will diminish the way that we have conglomerate organizations like we have now. So there's a lot of pieces in that. Let's put conglomerate organizations to the side for a moment. But the question of will those measuring sticks of success, you know, money, material goods, growth, some sort of like achievement recognition, um, like will, will those no longer be the major measuring sticks? And I, and I think so. And I, Yes, for certain, it's going to change. I mean, pretty much anyone who studies economic systems will tell you we are in what they call late-stage capitalism, which is basically like capitalism has uh, has run amok. Greed has overtaken the the you know best intentions of capitalism, and this um, this constant belief that growth for growth's sake is the goal is really being challenged right now. And I think it should be because we're now seeing the unintended consequences of that. We're seeing the unintended consequences in terms of the fact that we're just, we're destroying the habitat that we rely on for our own existence. Right. And so this is the sort of thing that my daughter's generation, the millennials and the zoomers those two generations, they grew up knowing that the jig is up. <laughs> I'm really, really looking forward on the long, longer term impact uh, to see how that's going to destroy capitalism or post capitalism as you were. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what comes next, but I do like some of the things that we have learned working with the agile value system and these agile frameworks that could be applied to whatever the next is. And I think one of the biggest things I would say there is that we've learned to work with what is versus what we're going to pretend is or try to force to be true. Um, and what that allows us to do is to have both transparency and accountability which then creates the possibility for change. And so I think about business decisions and I think about almost every business decision you can think of is likely going to have some negative unintended consequence. And there's kind of no way to know what that's going to be up front. I mean, you can know some things, but you're not going to know them all. And what we do right now is we sort of pretend like it didn't happen. 
We sort of sweep that under the rug and just move on to the next thing. So wouldn't it be great if our agile value system could be used in whatever is this next um, economic organization, you know, the way we organize our economic activity, to just own up to the fact that we're not omniscient beings. We cannot know ahead of time what's going to happen, but we can clean up our messes. I fully agree with that, and I would love for that to happen. Yet, on the other hand, I do see it happening that even the slightest mishap at this point in society is enlarged by to such an extent that it can destroy people in its entirety. Yeah. So how do these two tie together? Well, we're playing extinction games, aren't we? True. I mean, basically, I... <laughs> There are many ways that we can um, extinct ourselves or go down to a very, very small global population. Let's see what's going to happen with that. I don't know. Something I don't know. I, I feel like my role in that sort of horrific set of future possibilities will be to help people process their emotions so they can stay present to make the best decisions they can. I really do. That's powerful, especially because you can have such an impact on people's lives, uh, whether that's through coaching or through these kinds of things, like, like, like a podcast, hoping to inspire someone to just think in a different way to do it, their life in in a bit of more of a positive way. Something else, uh, uh, maybe as the last Second to last question. Do you think passion improves your quality of work? I I don't know how someone can do quality work that is novel or new without passion. I mean, sure, you can do quality work if you're doing the same thing that you've done a hundred times. Like these gentlemen in my house right now tiling my shower in my brand new bathroom. They are doing exquisite exquisite work. It is incredibly high quality. And I bet you they like their jobs, but I don't necessarily see that they're passionate about them. You know, they're, they're a means to an end. And that's, you know, a fine way to live. For me, um, and I think for a lot of people who are working in these, you know, complex business problems, um, you know, it's just so difficult to live with the cognitive dissonance all the time of not knowing the right thing to do, no black and white answers. You know, if you weren't passionate about your work, you'd be exhausted all the time. So how could you possibly create quality? Yet there are so many people still disengaged to the way that they work, the work that they do and their organization Mm -hmm. that we still have a really high level of burnouts. We do. We do. You know, I I suppose so many things have to change that I can't even start to name them. Um, But all I know, huh? If there's one thing that you think, hey, that that would be the foremost thing, the most profound thing that we should change uh, in order to have a more engaged uh, society. What do you think it is? I. I'm not sure about the number one, but the one that's coming to my mind now um, is that 
I think to have a more productive and engaged society, um, and also in people's business lives, that we need to stop lying to ourselves about the quote unquote fact that we know what's going to happen and we can plan for it. I think that is like the root of so much strife and so much, you know, horrible, horrible pressure and behavior that makes people just go like, fine, whatever. I'll just like, you know, punch the clock, do the job, whatever. You know, you're not going to give me time to do it well anyway. You know, and that's just one example of, of like a behavior and a, and a, a consequence of that behavior that comes out of that belief that we can predict and plan and control. That triggers so many thoughts in my head. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so I'm not going to go down that path else. We'll be having an episode of a couple of hours. I don't want to do that to the <laughs> listeners. Last question. Where can people engage with you? Where can people find you? Oh, please find me on my website. My name is Lisa Atkins, and you have to know how to spell it because it's a little strange. It's L-Y-S-S-A-A-D-K-I-N-S dot com. I'm going to include that in the link. Thank you. Or in the, in, the, in the show notes. Lisa Atkins, thank you so much for this very thought-provoking, insp inspirational discussion. I'm glad it was, Sandra. And thanks for... Um, the walk down, uh, like the different influences of passion on my life and my ability to look at that through a couple new lenses. So I yeah, really appreciate this conversation. Likewise, I really enjoyed it. I hope you have an, an awesome day. I hope your bathroom is going to look amazing too. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm really curious how it looks now, uh, but I hope it's going to turn out great. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so too. It's looking good. <laughs> Bye, Lisa. <laughs> okay. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up, so make sure to tune in again. Until then, 